My journey has been one of returning from the darkness and stepping out into the light once more. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivial. While you're sitting trying to figure that out, this is my podcast. Allegedly. Logos and Trivial podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivial. Maybe you're also Logos and Trivial. While you're trying to figure out what that means and how to pronounce it, let me introduce today's esteemed guest. I have with me the man, the myth, the glaring holes in his <laughs> in his resume. It's Michael Gimmerin. Thank you very much for being here, Michael. Thank you, Chance. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast and talk with you today. Appreciate you taking the time. Now, for those of you out there in audience land, Michael is a guy who I have connected with through a group of people who are connected to each other. Um, first rule of group of people who are connected to each other is you don't talk about it. <laughs> so, but, but Michael's a smart guy and he has a, he has a very distinct and uh, deep collection of knowledge and expertise that, that makes him uh, a valuable guy to have in a collection of people who are talking about technology and politics and society and um, maybe ways that those things can be shifted to a more beneficial uh, path. And the reason that he's on this podcast today is manifold, I suppose, but I had written an article on my website. I called it the Upship account, and it was essentially just combining all of the, you know, welfare or uh, sort of entitlement spending from government into an account that was your account, health, these kinds of things, and kind of playing with the idea of what could be done if a person had an account that was theirs that built interest and could be used for useful things like health or home buying or business investment, these kinds of things. And Michael said, it wouldn't work ever. And I said, why not? And he said, because democracy. <laughs> I just kind of <laughs> laughed because it's like, well, democracy is, democracy is democracy. It's not necessarily my favorite, but I guess it's, it's kind of what we're pretending we have. But anyway, with that sort of rambling, sparse, and nonspecific introduction, Michael, why don't you uh, take the reins a little bit and fill in the gaps on who you are and what you do for the audience out there? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started two decades ago programming. Um, you know, like many programmers came into it as a gamer, I really liked to manipulate, write my own patches. Um, Jedi Knight was the game that I liked to manipulate. Um, and then from there, just got really into computer hacking and then later social engineering and sort of understanding systems. Um, I'd say for the last 10 years, professionally, my career has been a combination of um, hard technology in infrastructure and operations, um, all the way through trying to understand today about, you know, this big transition that we're going through um, from basically institutional understanding to uh, networked understanding, which we call sense making. And when Chance talked about um, his idea, uh, which is, you know, not, not a particularly new idea. There's, there's a lot of literature over the last, I don't know, go back to Friedman in the fifties talking about universal basic income. Um, I was like, you know, this is a great idea. It's an idea that I was enamored with for a really long time. And, 
Um, Chance is a really smart guy. So I said, oh, we have an opportunity to maybe talk about some of the issues around how this could or, you know, couldn't work. And um, yeah, I think, I think that would be fun to talk about. I think it's also interesting, you know, as we sit here in our pandemic land um, to talk about just sort of what we're seeing. Cause I think different people are responding in different ways. And I think it has a, 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 a it'll have a profound impact on sort of the trajectory that we, that we go in. So yeah, that's, it's a little bit of, that's a little bit of rambling to mix out your rambling. <laughs> Perfect. Maybe I'll give just a little bit of Genesis on why I wrote that article in the first place. Sure. Yeah. I was talking with my wife and since this coronavirus situation has arisen, some of the things that I have spoken to her sort of ad nauseum over the years about, um, and I have a habit of doing that, uh, became a little bit clearer for her. And she started to realize that, you know, maybe my distrust fundamentally of government and my mockery of both sides of the aisle of the ostensible opposition in Washington and the power games and the these kinds of things just sort of like the veil was pulled from her eyes and she could see these things playing out in real time and every day it was like one more freedom being impinged upon and and whether whether or not you you have an opinion on masks or on the disease or on the politicians you can sort of see how there's this there's this like a chain of power that is capable of being manipulated to remove your own personal power in a lot of ways. It's almost like, it's almost like you're a piece on a game board and you don't know the rules and you don't know who's playing you and where, but you can tell that you're, if you do, there's, it's like, what are you going to do about it? Exactly. You can't change the die roll. Mm -hmm. And so I was in the midst of a conversation with her about these things. And I, I did the same thing I typically do at a certain point in these conversations, which is throw my hand in, up in the air and say, well, you know, what are you going to do about it? Because if these fuckers gave uh, a damn about you, they would just, all this money that they say that they want to set aside or a portion for you to use for these things, they would just put it in an interest-bearing account and, and then just regulate your use of that money for those things. And then you would always have that money. It would be building interest and it wouldn't be a Ponzi scheme. But since they don't do that, you know they don't care about you. And that it's just one more tool for them to affect political power in the ways that they see fit and play their, their games with each other at your expense. So let me push back there for a second. Why do you think that they don't do it that way? Because you're a reasonable guy. A lot of people who are taxpayers are very reasonable. They would say something like the government seems really good at regulating, right? They did a pretty good job with the FDA. They've done a pretty good job with the USDA. Certainly if you look back to Upton Sinclair, the EPA with reducing carbon or excuse me, nitrous oxide and uh, sulfuric dioxide emissions. So SOx and NOx, right? They're good at regulating. Um, why is it that when it comes to payments, right? Specifically welfare payments, they wouldn't just do like what you say, right? Like, like, I mean, obviously there's the cynical view, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious why, why you think that they don't, cause they, they, they there's a model in government and theoretically we elect leaders that should reflect us. Well, uh, I mean, if that's the case, 
we're we're not a great we're not a great collection of people but okay. <laughs> <laughs> if if i i mean this is obviously this is a multifaceted sure system but if if i if i look at it and i think well why is it not the case i think there are a number of reasons and i i i think that you probably look at it with a different emphasis than i do but mm -hmm. from my vantage point if that money is in your account and it's yours and it can't be touched by the sort of issue of the day or the or the political momentum of the day then it can't sway votes and it can't sway opinion and it and it can't be used as a tool to um, leverage other policy or to be packaged with other policies that um, can be snuck into a great big thousand page bill and you, you really if nobody reads them so but, yeah but so so I guess what I'm getting at here is just that the kind of stability that you paying into your own account offers for you creates a stability in the political machine that does not behoove the people who want to try to use the instability as a tool of leverage to accomplish other things. That's, that's my, yeah. Point. Yeah. I think, I think that's, I think that's one important aspect. I think if you look at IRA accounts or like 401k accounts, so in theory, these are accounts that we've set aside for a very narrow set of purposes. So like in your case, the upship account might include like healthcare and, you know, like if you wanted to withdraw money for a down payment on a house or something like that, or start a business, that would be included in the upship account, but it's not in your 401k or IRA with, with special exemptions. Um, the other way that I tend to think about these things is that um, the government like what you just said is sort of a looking back way, right? So if we look at the if we look at the problems the government has, our tendency is to try and use the solutions that we're most familiar with, right? Those that we see in the last 10, 20 years as being breakthroughs and say, oh, we should apply those to the government. And if we think about like the welfare state and the distribution of payments, I mean, it goes back to the 30s. And in the 30s, it was really difficult to administer something like you can only take this out for a specific type of activity, right? If you think about like the actual, okay, I have an account that has $5,000 in it. $5,000 is a ton of money in the 1940s, 1950s. And I can only take it out in these cases. Well, who, who does that? Does the government now run a bank that everybody has access to, right? And how do they have branches, right? Like, are there people like at government offices, like the social security office? I mean, the California DMV, I live in California. They maybe do like a dozen things and it's a disaster. <laughs> right. It's like long lines. It's terrible service. Everything is bad. And they only do like 12 things. It's like, I want to get a license. I want to take my driver's exam. I want to like, I want to change my registration. They, you don't do a ton and it's just terrible. And so when I think about paper process and how we might use that to do something all encompassing, like what you're saying, you know, and then I've worked or I've been a party to or seen situations where one government agency will have two computer systems in the same room and because they've never connected them together this one will print out and then the, there'll be people who take the printouts literally walk them across the room and they'll type them in and 
there are entire shifts 24 hours a day at the Pentagon of people doing that from one armed services branch computer system to another, even to this day in, in 2020. Um, and so when I think about like this idea, you know, it's, it's, um, not possible to globally administer something which is locally distributed, right. And sort of flip it on its head. Like how can we locally distribute accounts for people? I mean, like even San Francisco classic example, right. We give people, um, EBT cards so they can buy food. Tons of people get these cards. They go into the corner shop. The corner shop runs up some bogus charge and then gives them cash, right? And then they turn around and they walk outside and they buy crack from the guy on the street. And then like the, you can like, you can with the video camera, you can see this happening like all on the same frame, right? <laughs> you can like see the clerk, give them the money. And you say like, oh, okay, San Francisco is really dysfunctional. And then I would challenge that and say like, well, I think human systems in themselves are really dysfunctional. And so when, when we talked about why this wasn't, possible like democracy is is part of it right which is your which is your part which is basically everybody has different priorities and different things that they want to accomplish with a government and it changes on you know what time of life you are right so if you're really old you want stability and if you're really young you want risk so that you can make something of yourself um, and even looking at something just as simple as that from a healthcare standpoint uh, the type of healthcare that somebody receives at different points in their life based on their risk profile, just based on their age, not even like taking their health into consideration already changes. Like even for the same thing, coronavirus is a, is a great example, right? Tons of millennials are paranoid about it because they think that it might be some engineered virus and it might be screwing up their kidneys 20 years from now. Um, boomers, they don't care. They're like out there <laughs> having a great time. They're like, ah, they've told us the world was going to end 50 other times engineered virus, probably not. And if they lose their kidneys in 20 years, they don't really care. Right. And so you have this, um, this appreciation for risk that is different. And so then I just think about like, okay, now we're going to say like, okay, this is a, you know, $400 of your $2,000 stipend per year can go to health. Well, health can mean so many different things to so many different people. Like in my family, we buy, um, organic grass fed beef and we have a difficult time eating chicken because chickens are fed all kinds of garbage. And then because they're a non-ruminant animal, like makes you sick frequently or pork also fed garbage. So we eat a lot of beef and like fish. Right. And I consider that to be health because if I'm not eating like bread and getting really big and having metabolic syndrome, then I'm not taking diabetes medicines 20 years from now, that are a thousand times more expensive than the extra $3 a pound that I spend on my beef. Right. So is that health or is it, you know, food? Right. And so the, the questions of those definitions, and then you think about like a government and we have this discussion all the time. Um, cause I would say part of the reason that I'm in the group that we're in together is that I was educated in the technocratic class, right. Mm -hmm. Which is this class of people that believe that we have all this amazing technology, this amazing ability for policy, this amazing knowledge. Right. And, so you think like, oh, if we just educate everybody, then they'll make good decisions, right? And the reality is, is that that's very misguided because it, it sort of is a projection of one's own value system onto everybody else. And that leads to problems, right? And so like in any context, those, uh, that, that technocracy doesn't, it doesn't actually work, which is, I don't know. I, I, I forget the point that I was trying to make, but it has some do you remember what we were talking about at the beginning here? It's like two, two sentences ago. 
I was, I was sort of pinging the nodes on my own web here as I was, but in fact, let me just, let me just jump. We can shift. It's fine. It, it'll come back to you, but yeah. One of the points you made is, is sort of the self-evident concept of bureaucratic drag. Yeah. Which there's not a lot that needs to necessarily be said about that. It's like, well, a big fat bureaucracy that isn't efficient, it's going to, that, that causes issues when you're trying to administer something that um, needs to be innovative instead of sort of iterative and, and slowly iterative at that. Yeah. But the other, the other thing that I was thinking about is when I wrote this account or when I wrote this article about, about this account, mm -hmm. it, to, to me, I don't care about it at all. Uh, as far as like, I, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to, I have no dog in the game because for me, it's just a, it's one of those things. Like if you take Elon Musk, for example, great capital allocator. Guys, well, and who knows what that guy's real values are. People just say, we want this. And he goes, okay, here you go. I, f I fixed it for you. What, what I'm pretty you sure that guy wants to go to Mars. <laughs> hey, great. Let's go. And he's going to change everything about the world getting there. It's going to be yeah, amazing. He's making, but, you know, people say, I want an electric car. He's like, all right, here you go. People say, we want worldwide Wi-Fi. Okay, here you go. We want super fast travel. Okay, here, I'll put a bullet train into the ground and I'll shoot you in tubes. Cool. What else, yeah. what else do you want? And he's gotten the collateral and the sort of social capital and he's able to do those things. And this is my sort of very <laughs> limited version. It's like, well, what, what's the problem here? Government sucks at managing your money. Okay, well, here you go. So, so the, the reason I bring that up is just to your points about, well, is grass-fed beef health or is uh, anti-psychotics health? Or is um, you know, my response to that or my pushback to you a little bit is, well, you're buying food anyway. You know, the government... The government takes a certain amount of money from you to pay for these programs already. It's, mm -hmm. it's just my suggestion that if we wanted it to be effective, you just put it in an interest-bearing account instead of letting them play games. And, and a portion of that interest goes to bolster the accounts of the people who don't make enough to meet that sort of mandatory minimum. And then, and then there you go. There's a little bit of political maneuvering there. So you can say, well, how high or low should and how much interest should be taken or whatever else. But... That's just sort of my thinking surrounding it that might be able to feed your your thoughts is I don't I don't care about the idea. It was just sort of like, well, what is the problem? Okay, here's a simple solution that would work better uh, ostensibly than, than what we're doing. If it was about the individual person and their capacity to have money set aside for the things that are going to definitely be a part of their life, whether it's health or, or housing or uh, these or retirement or um, safety net, these kinds of things that we already pay for, we already pay a lot for, and mm -hmm. then we rarely see the benefit of it. Or if we do, it's, you know, 30, 40, 50 years down the road from when we started paying into them. And everybody's great fear is, well, the, you know, the social security fund is going to collapse. Like, well, what fund are you talking about? You mean the general fund every year that they pay out of? Uh, okay. And so I guess maybe I'll just check it back to you with that. It's just a little more perspective on, on why I wrote what I wrote and, and where my thinking was when I put, you know, just cobbled together this collection of ideas. 
Yeah, no, I get it. I hear it. You're frustrated. We said that we're going to solve homelessness in San Francisco. You know, we spend $700 million a year, and that's not a made up number. You can look at the San Francisco city budget. They spend $700 million a year for 7,000 homeless people. It's $100,000 per homeless person. You don't have to be a rocket scientist trying to land people on Mars to understand that there's a lot of wasted money going on because you see a lot of people pooping. You see a lot of people ODing. You see a lot of problems, right? And so you're like, great, let's just, let's just take the $100,000 and just give it to the homeless people. What would happen then? They would all die from overdose, but- um, Boom, problem solved. Yeah, or you would create a problem of 10 times more homeless person, oh, homeless people as the Obama administration learned when they allowed the borders to become so porous. And then the number of people that came towards the borders went up. Uh, I know this this was like 50 news cycles ago, but you may have remembered that we, we keep people in detention centers at the border because we don't want them coming into the country. It's the exact same problem, right? The Obama administration saw that all these people were coming to the border most of them are migratory. A lot of them were brought by coyotes, which are basically cartel shepherds that bring them into the country. Um, their country of origin may have suffered a catastrophic event like Venezuela socialism, and they don't want to go back. Um, and so it was easier for them at the time to just let people in to the United States um, than it was to send them back. And so they didn't. Right. And because the alternative would have been headlines and pictures of people dying in the desert. Right. It's like you came to the border. Got to go back. Here, we're going to drop you off at the border. That's Mexico. You know, that's where you came in. Go. Here's a camelback. Right? Here's, yeah, exactly. Here's some, <laughs> here's some water, right? And so we're in this weird place where they started letting people in because they didn't know what to do with them because they couldn't store them at the border. And then anybody who actually looks into that story realizes that parents send their children because they want them to have a better life in America, but they don't come themselves. So the people that bring the children on the border, the coyotes, they're not their relatives. So you have all these kids with no parents sitting in centers and they're like, oh, I'm going to go visit my uncle, you know, John in Los Angeles. Sure you are. Sure you have an uncle John, right? That that person never shows up, right? So maybe there is an uncle John, like we can be fair, right? These problems are always complicated and there's always sort of follow on issues, right? And so then it gets back to the point of like, well, should we even try to solve the problem in the first place? Right. San Francisco homelessness. Right. Uh, uh, you know, a bunch of people are like, oh, there's homeless people. We should provide blankets and food and shelters for them. And then other people are like, great, I'll provide blankets and foods and shelter. And I'll, you know, I'll take 15 percent. Then they hire five people who help distribute blankets and food and build shelters. Well, those people got to be fed. And then all of a sudden you're spending one hundred thousand dollars per homeless person. And those people aren't actually getting the money. Um, and it's just going to like 500 different agencies in the city of San Francisco, which is a seven by seven square mile, seven mile by seven mile square. Um, and you just, and you just sit there and you're just like, what, what is this? Where's the accountability, right? Like how come I can't view the budget as a big spreadsheet and click through, okay, every, this is what everybody spent on every single thing. And I can go audit, audit the whole thing. No idea. Any fortune 500 company, they have tons of regulation for being on the financial exchanges you can do that, right? Like the information is in public, but the companies can, right? If somebody buys 10,000 reams of paper at Google, I guarantee you that the CFO can interrogate down and figure out who did that. As a citizen of California and previously San Francisco, I can't do that. And so the question is, why can't I do that? And if I can't do that, then is it even worth it to have a homelessness program at all? Hmm. Right. And, and I, I mean, we all feel, right? We see 
just terrible things. And we say like, oh, well, some people clearly can't help themselves. Right. And the San Francisco homeless situation is a great example of this as well, because California changed its conservatorship laws. So there are a bunch of women who are getting raped in institutions in California decades ago. Right. They're mentally unstable. The stories came out. They're having kids. It's really inappropriate. You still hear about women who are in comas, who are giving birth, which is awful. And, um, right, you hear about this. And so then the state, the people of state rightly said, okay, this is wrong. These institutions are doing more harm than good. Uh, we're changing the conservatorship laws. So the state no longer has the authority to put people with mental illness in an institution. And so they released everybody. Now those are the homeless people, right? So you actually go in and you meet the homeless people. A lot of them have serious mental issues. A lot of them in California were vets from the Vietnam War, but something like 40 or 50% have mental issues. And then as a result, it's because drugs are easy to get, they become addicted to drugs, right? And there's a physical component to that. And so then you're like, okay, so we spend all this money and these people have mental issues. Do we spend the money on the mental issues thing? Right? And then you're like, okay, well, maybe we should change the conservatorship laws. And then you get all these people who are housing insecure. So they're like almost homeless. And it's because they have a job because most people don't want to be homeless unless they actually choose to be right. They actually don't want to depend on welfare. I've worked thousands of hours in food banks, right? And there's all these people always come in who can't afford food. They actually want to work for the day to get food. Right. And um, it's the same with the homeless people. Most people don't want to be homeless. They don't want to live on the street in a tent. It's not glamorous. It sucks. You can get robbed at any time. And so they want housing and San Francisco and California doesn't allow single occupancy rooms with the bathroom at the end of the hall, because that's what black people used to have in the city. And so they changed the fire code. So you could not have a door and a bed and a dresser with a bathroom at the end of the hall, unless you were a grandfathered in building. So developers can't build housing at the cost, at the price point where poor people who are almost homeless, right? Cause they lose their job or whatever, cause the city's just stupid and doesn't make housing. So it's phenomenally expensive. Um, Right. And that was a law from, I don't know, 70 years ago that changed the single occupancy room code and basically made it impossible to build so that it hasn't been built. And it was a it was a it was a racist law. And and as a result, we're here decades later with the problem. So do we change that law? Do we change the conservatorship law? Do we redirect the money? Do we defund the police? Right. Like, I think these are really complicated issues. And and anytime that you get something that you say it's, oh, it's really simple. We just like, there's been a lot of people who say like, okay, the U S spends a trillion dollars a year on entitlement payments, screw any kind of administration. We're just going to take 300 million people and we're going to divide that number into a trillion dollars. And we're just going to send everybody a check every single year and say, good luck. Right. We're going to save probably 30% cause we're not, there'll be a gazillion union people upset about this, but you know, we're going to save a ton of money and any kind of study about earned income tax credit or whatever always shows that if you give poor people an extra thousand dollars, they use it the most efficient way for themselves. Right. But if you give them an extra $10,000, it's a disaster, hmm. which is exemplified by the, the stories of people winning the lottery, right? They win the lottery and then their lives go to shit because they really don't have the ability to manage that kind of money because it's not as simple, right? And, you know, an extra 10% of income is easy to deal with hundred percent sort of, but like more than hundred percent, huge problems. Um, and it's complicated. So my, my result was it's democracy is 
Well, you got all those unions who would fight against just taking all the money and dividing it by the number of people. Right? And then you could make it means tested. So you could say like, oh, okay, well, only at poverty level seniors, except that that's how Social Security started in the first place. And sometime in the 1960s, we expanded it to everybody. Right. And then and then we included people who are disabled and then we changed the laws on that. And so like tens of millions of people are disabled. Are they really disabled? I don't know. I'm not qualified to say whether or not they're disabled, but certainly there's an incentive to become disabled in certain instances. And then are those people actually getting help if they actually are disabled or no longer able to make a, a living or they just don't want to or whatever it is, right? Hmm. So it's like, I think, so my answer was it's democracy is, is multifaceted, right? It's like these problems are complex systems problems. They're not single, you know, politicians, they always tell us like, oh, you know, college is the ticket to making more money. And college is expensive. So to make it so that everybody can make more money, we're just going to make college free. Right. That's like, these are platforms that real politicians run on. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, like they're, they're like, they're, no, 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 no. It's a real politics. They raise money. I am here asking for money again from my third house. Right. Um, it's a, it's, it's a real platform. And it's because every issue you can make into a soundbite, you can simplify it. You can simplify it. You can simplify it. You say, well, it's easy. It's easy. If we just remove Donald Trump, then all of the totalitarian things that we've done over the past 10 months, they, they, you know, they're, they're justified, right? There are people who are literally saying like, yeah, okay, this person, like he's a really bad guy, but if, if we have to vote for them, right? Or on the other side, um, the same thing is happening as well because it's, it's too hard. There's too much information. People don't know how to sort it. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to make sense of it. And our advertising system, you know, is started by the government in the thirties. Again, um, there's a bunch of Yale persuasion studies basically on how to get people to buy war bonds. And, um, shout out to know, Bernays and, and the left. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, brilliant guys, right? I mean, brilliant guys, fucking halitosis and, just, you know, um, <laughs> Uh, the wedding rings, right? That just came out of nowhere. Oh yeah, we're going to buy a, a, a worthless rock. Well, how do you know it's worthless? Because there's no secondary market. Wait, what? Um, right? Like they took all of this stuff and then, and then, and this is the crazy thing. We went and we used all of those tools after the financial crisis, right? In, in um, basically toppling governments that didn't, that wouldn't be shaken down. And now they've all come back to the United States. Like, I, I, I don't know how many people are talking about like the yellow vests in France, the people protesting in Moscow, the people in Hong Kong, the black lives matter movement. It's all the same people. They're, they're at what's the, the thing, the thing is driving all these things is the exact same thing, right? Like it's not limited to just socialism or just democracy or just democracy or just anything, one ethnic group or another. It's like, mostly people are really upset and it's because they, their, their ability to process information individually is much faster than our ability to process information collectively. And that's fundamental to what um, I've been trying to help people with, right? Because everybody's upsetness at the US government for coronavirus is not that they got it wrong, it's that they were slow, right? Because a bunch of random people on Twitter who have no business making decisions were able to come to solutions faster than the FDA or the CDC or the government. 
And it's the government didn't come to the wrong solutions. It just took them a really long time because they have a bureaucratic process to follow. And before the internet, you would never have known because the newspapers, you know, controlled by six people, six groups of people, right? In the United States, at least. So, so that, that kind of sense-making and that kind of teaching people how things were is really easy, but now we have access to fucking everything, right? And so you and I can talk about halitosis. We know exactly what we're talking about. That was not the case 30 years ago when people were talking about advertising. Word up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at this a little obliquely here, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land it in some territory that will help us to move into some territory that I think will be good for you to expand upon. Sure. I have these threads on Twitter that I continue to post more stuff under. And I'm writing his characters. And the one I started out with, shout out to Roman for giving me the idea, by the way. Isaiah and Mo are some of my favorite characters in history. <laughs> but I started writing as the court jester. And the whole deal behind it is just, just, poking, just poking at the hypocrisy of power. And sometimes I just wrote stuff or other times I would see things in the news and I would just act as though I was the court jester mocking the king or the court. And then I split that into some more characters. The council, I call it, which is sort of like the, the diabolical New World Order. And the American Dreamer, which is sort of the naive guy who can't believe that the government lies. <laughs> and and, <Yeah>. and the, <laughs> tinfoil, the tinfoil hat maker, who uh, is just sort of the conspiracy theorist who seems crazy but is actually kind of pointing you to some stuff and they're all they're all they're all of a kind they're all serving the same desire that I have which is to highlight some of the things that we were just touching upon which is look this is not this unrest is not accidental the way that your emotions are played upon is not accidental. The way that the news cycle operates and the way that you are inundated with the same six stories on every single news media outlet across the entire planet simultaneously is clearly not by accident. And so if you take that to be the case, then what do you see? How does the tapestry change? How does that network appear to you if you step back and you go, okay, it's all the same. What does that mean for me? What does that what does that mean for the world? Who who are these people and what are they doing? Yeah. And I don't want to go too far down that hole along that line, but the reason that I brought all this up is just to say anybody with eyes to see can see that there are forces at work that are stirring the pot and stirring the momentum. It's sort of like a it's this that's not a very controversial thing to say. Yeah. So let's steal man an idea for a second and say that because I, I've had a lot of people politically inclined on this podcast and I, I always ask them, are, are we fucked already? And basically every one of them with the exception of one or two says, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's just a matter of triage. Okay. So let's, let's just, let's just say that's true for now, whether it is or not. What are we supposed to do about that then? Because, you know, you brought up a lot of things. Well, so, we have this 70-year-old racist law. We have this bureaucratic drag. We have this uh, yeah. sort of 
so, so what are we supposed to do about it? And, and that's where I think we can land and, and let you lean on some of your expertise and experience. Yeah, I think, I think there's two things that are really important that I tend to disagree with people on when we talk about these things. The first one is there is a belief that I believe is wrong, and I have lots of evidence for it, um, which is that there is a group of people, a cabal, who are controlling world events. There really isn't. Um, and this is the idea that the world that we see is constructed versus the world that we see is emergent. And I believe that when we talk about the invisible hand of the market, this is a, this is a conversation about emergence, right? So it's not the case that there are a hundred people who meet at, you know, the Bilderberg group or the council on foreign relations. And they decide, Oh, what country are we going to throw over next? Right. It's, there are a bunch of people who have desires, instincts, and they have tremendous leverage. So I'm going to bring in Price's Law for a second. Have you, just for, for all the listeners, Price was a researcher who was looking at publications for books, and he observed that 50% of the publications in a particular area of interest are produced by the square root of the total number of participants. And what this means in sort of let's, we can abstract the idea, right? Which is 50% of the output in the human system is done by 10% is done by the square root of the total number of participants. So if you're in a group of 10 people, three people do 50% of the work. If you're in a group of a thousand people, about 30 people do 50% of the work. So any, anybody who's ever been in like a big system immediately recognizes this to be true. The problem for Price's law is that it used to be like kept in check by paper process, because there's a logarithmic curve to how much leverage you could get as an individual. Now that we have software, it actually can grow to the size of the US economy, mm -hmm. right? And so in that case, $10 trillion of GDP is created by 18,000 people, which when you take 18,000 and you divide, you know, throw the denominator of 150 million or so working people in the US, 18,000 is an infinitesimally small number but those people matter so much more to the exclusion of everybody else, right? Like the other people basically don't matter at all because if you think about the, if you think about prices law as the power law, then the square root, the 18,000 do 10 trillion. So then you ask like, okay, what about the next hundred thousand people? What do they do of the 20 trillion theoretic? Oh, they do like 7 trillion. Okay, great. So now we're at 250,000 people and we're at 19.5 trillion of the $20 trillion in economic output. Right. And so that is an emerged behavior because no one was like, okay, let's figure out who the 18,000 people are and let's put them in positions all over the world, blah, blah, blah. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Right. It's just, it emerges through the, through the distribution of technology through the system. Right. So this is a classic place where I differ. And the reason why I talk about it is because if you believe that the world is constructed, right? Like there's a secret race of reptiles who are controlling things behind the scenes. Shout out to my man, David Icke. <laughs> <laughs> right? If you believe that, then the interventions that you want to prescribe are different than if you believe that the world emerges. So when people ask me the question, are we already screwed? I, I give the answer no, because if humanity was going to consume itself with the nihilism of Marxism, right? With this belief in nothingness, with God is dead, then humanity would have never made it out of the forests and made into ag agriculture. We would have been dead a long time ago. The, the value systems that underlie the religious institutions or any institutions that we've created 
that are lending, right, that exist over time, those values are not going to go away. And so the technology that we've created just changes the way that everything gets expressed. And if you believe that things are emergent and not constructed, then you understand that we have to go through this period of chaos because we have to tear down all these institutions that don't make sense, right? Like great example is the Department of Motor Vehicles. If I have eight tellers and there's 80 people in line, then there's 10 person per teller, okay? And if it takes five minutes, then if I'm the 10th person in line for my teller, it's gonna be 50 minutes before I get served, okay? That's a paper process. If I wanna increase the output of that process, I hire two more tellers, now I have 10 tellers, now it's eight people in line, then the length of the longest person is 40 minutes, okay? If I take that process and I make it into a computer, then I have one programmer who spends one month digitizing that entire process. And then it, that software can be used an infinite number of times and there's no line, right? And so the transition from, we can get more leverage because we use a linear system, which is paper, to we can now use an exponential system, which is this digital technology. The transition from linear to exponential is extremely chaotic because it changes fundamentally what is, what is scarce and what is abundant. And when you change what is scarce, then you therefore you change what is valuable. And if you have your entire system built on this idea of artificial scarcity, re-credentialism in education, right? There's only so many doctors. And then you're like, you don't know fucking anything about my particular illness, right? You like go to a doctor, like they went to school for like 12 years, presumably they were doing something. And then you ask them something that's more than like 70th percentile, they have no idea, right? Or you talk to some of these guys on the carnivore diet and you're like, well, did you know they tell you, they go, did you know that the average doctor only gets six hours on nutrition? Like, I have no idea how to evaluate that statistic, but if it's true, it's insane, right? Like yeah. it, you, we eat food and you don't know anything about it. And you're going to tell me about my health. Yeah. That's what happens when you move from a paper process to an exponential process. I, I want to jump back in a little bit here. Yeah. There's a couple, there's a couple points. Number one, I agree with you actually that. The bulk of the phenomena uh, that are happening on a societal scale or a worldwide, worldwide scale are these emergent properties that are sort of just the symptoms of the milieu. Uh, but just as you can say, you, Michael, that here are these leverage points that I can see clearly. If I put a computer here, I get this exponential um, benefit out of it at the DMV. Mm -hmm. Well, what if you, Michael, had $100 billion and could see just as clearly? And and so my pushback a little bit on what you're Oh, I'm the greatest is, capital allocator you've ever met, except for maybe Bezos and Musk. Like I, I could spend $100 billion and like make life way better for every person on the planet. Way better. Easily. That's why I pay more. That's why I'm in the highest tax bracket. To get back to your original idea, which is how do we fund upships accounts, yeah. right? And we talked about this. You just tax everyone who's below GDP per capita 100% of their income. Yeah. When you make more than GDP per capita, then you get to keep more money. And then so, by the time you make 10 times GDP per capita, you pay no taxes. That's how you do my, it. Here's my, here's my point. I don't, I don't have to... These emergent features of the system, I don't have to build them. They build themselves. Correct. All I have to do, all I have to do is go, oh, look, here's a fulcrum. Let's put a little weight on it. 
Let's put a little weight on it. And it's going to radically shift everything when yes. you do that. Yep. And, and so I don't necessarily, I think there are cabals, but I. They're opportunistic, not constructing. Yes. yes. And, and, and there's not like one of them. No, no, no. They're just like, exactly. You sleep with the guy's wife and then all of a sudden he's no longer in your cabal. Now you have two cabals. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Seriously, they sleep with each other's wives. It's not even like a joke. Or, or, or the, you know, the company sleeps with each other's technology and then you, yeah. have, you have Microsoft and Apple and, and Xerox is out of the picture. But so, so my, my point in bringing that up is just that I agree with you that there's not some sort of nefarious master group of a hundred people or a thousand people who are sort of building the world, but there are, there are opportunistic or exploitative groups who have a whole bunch of money and political power and uh, can just like pinpoint on that, on that leverage point and, and shift things radically. Yes. And then the, the next point is that I, I wrote about this, on Twitter the other day and it was just it was just one of those throwaway thoughts that it seems to me to be self-evident at the time and then people respond to it and they go I hadn't thought about that things or things that way which is that the more money or political capital or or personal capital that's invested in a network or uh, sort of like a, sys, a systems architecture the more energy that is invested in steering things away from anything that's going to disrupt that network or that architecture because it's sort of like the the sunken cost fallacy at work if you believe that the sunken cost is not a fallacy then you 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 endeavor to keep that architecture in place because like let's say that i well, also wait 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 i just want to stop you right there i i look at it as more like monetary expansion so if you have a flywheel that's an ecosystem and it don't, you only have a hundred dollars, but because of the ecosystem, it represents as a thousand that you don't want to take away money because then it will ex- contract really quickly. That's, that's what I think underlies why. So like there are scale, there are economies of scale when people get together that allow them to create more value than they could individually. So they get a thousand people working by themselves. It's not as much money as a thousand people working together. That's why large companies form, right? So. The, it's, it's not so much that the people believe, oh, I've already spent $10 billion. It's that the value of the network and their ability to extract personal value from the network is, is, is their incentives are aligned to keep it going, even when it makes no sense. So anyway, right, continue. Right. That's, that's essentially what I'm saying is yep. it, by the time a network grows to a, a certain scale or like a literal architecture, uh, infrastructure, Say like ExxonMobil has all this money invested in their their physical. Sure, they need to depreciate it. It's trillions of dollars. Yeah. Okay, we're we gonna just toss that out the window because we have found a more viable form of energy, or or not? Probably not. Or if well, we are, we're going to do that over time. So it might benefit me, the consumer, to have nuclear power right now. Like they should have built, they should have built, they should have built the plants twenty years ago, ten years ago, five years ago. They should have got them built, but that doesn't. If, if as an energy consumer, great, I got cheap nuclear power that's that's a lot safer than it used to be, and it was never all that unsafe anyway. Okay, yeah. awesome. But ExxonMobil goes, well, maybe that's true, but you know we have provided you all this energy over all this time. Sure, and they're they're the current energy people, so they're the ones who donate to the energy committees who decide what energy policy is. 
And, and as I it turns out, fund think, movements. No, go, yeah. I was just going to say, I don't even necessarily think it's a malicious or a nefarious thing. It's just like, look, man, we got to amortize the cost of this transition over time if we're going to stay in business. So Correct. Sometimes there are parasitic organizations or networks that, for example, let's take Amazon. Amazon's a great big network. And let's just assume for the sake of argument that it's very parasitic on the economy and on the tax system but everybody buys their shit from amazon yeah especially so now not. that everybody's locked down well yeah. and every you know well it's not necessarily for an individual consumer but if i'm a small business and amazon has a certain price point that i have to compete with that puts me out of business then i as maybe you should do business, something else yeah maybe or you know but do we want like, small businesses? Do we, do we, do we like really want corporations? You know? Yeah, no, 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 no. I would not equate small businesses distributing commodities locally with a big a big business distributing commodities globally, right? So if Amazon was doing first degree price discrimination, like they do with speeding tickets in Sweden or wherever, then I could understand, right? Where one person pays more for the same thing as other people, right? And they kind of do that with their shipping thing. Um, but if they were actually showing advertised prices different, then there would be an issue, but they don't actually do that. So like having a mom and pop store that sells like batteries and light bulbs versus being able to buy it one day shipping on Amazon, I have zero problem with that. I, I, the only reason I'm using Amazon as the example is because it is ubiquitous. And let's say that it is parasitic for the sake of argument. Let's say company A is ubiquitous and is parasitic yeah but there's a billion people invested in being a consumer of company a services and there's another billion people who are invested in um, meeting the demands of the consumers and so just like you said the economy of scale at play there means that there's a lot more people being paid, there's a lot more business being done. And so it becomes very difficult to dismantle something like that, even if it is parasitic on the system as a whole, because there's so many people invested in using it and servicing the needs. Right. right. And so like that, that gets back to this idea of choice, right? Like if you believe individuals have freedom and the ability to choose, then that company is not parasitic. Right. And if you actually yeah, believe, <laughs> if you believe it's parasitic, then what will happen is the system will increase in complexity until it collapses back to the natural equilibrium. I wonder, I wonder here if I was listening Great. to Eric, Eric Weinstein's, uh, the portal. Mm hmm. And he was talking about sort of social superposition or, or cognitive superposition where his example, one of the examples he used was abortion. Abortion advocates say, yeah, have as many abortions as you want. It's, you know, the, hype, the hyperbolic stuff, the, the sort of uh, like political machinations, the, the abortion advocates, yeah, abortion is no problem up until, you know, a certain point. Like, let's say it's third trimester, you can't do it anymore. But up until then, it's hunky-dory. It's no problem. It's a woman's right to choose. It's not a, it's not a person. It's not a baby. It's just a, it's just a collection of cells. 
And sure. anti-abortion advocates, they say, no, it's a human from the moment the sperm enters the egg and any abortion at all under any circumstances is wrong and it's evil and you're going to hell and God frowns upon you. Yep. Okay. But that's that multiple choice, that A-B multiple choice, that's, that's not the reality. Uh, you know, and so you find yourself in a superposition where it's like, if I'm presented with choice A or choice B, how am I supposed to answer it when I recognize that that's not the reality that I'm living in? And then you have to go, okay, well, I'm like 75% choice A and, and 25% choice B probabil- prob- probabilistically. So I'm in, I'm in social superposition right now. And the reason yeah. I bring that Thankfully, up is people just, don't make decisions like that. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely not. But if you're looking at a collective whole, then you sort of do get that, that interplay. But right. the reason I bring that up in this context is just, you brought up, if you believe that people have choice, then this system that's parasitic will collapse in on itself. But I, I think we're in a position or like this is a conversation or a, an aspect of the conversation where that, that multiple choice is a bad question. Do people have choice? Yeah, I think so. Do they always exercise their choice as though they do? No, they don't. And marketing is big. Politics is big. Emotional response is big. Sometimes you do things as an emotional response or as a tribal response that you wouldn't do if you sat down and thought about it and made a choice. If you didn't just act but chose. You know, so this this, uh, sort of response to something rather than a choice about an issue is where I, I I think we're we're missing something in between here on this on this idea and I guess I just wonder yeah what so I think your solution to that is yeah so I think you're you're touching on a number of issues right so like one of them that I think is really important is this idea of entrainment right so in music you know if someone's clapping then all of a sudden everybody's clapping um, and so the individual is actually turning over their decision making process to the group in like a very physical and manifest way right. And to an extent, the technology and the information that we consume is forcing us into a kind of rhythm, kind of entrainment, where I could tell you that Donald Trump is defunding the post office and you would believe me, even though it's not true, right? And then you would make decisions based on based on that. Um, so I think that is one part. The other part that I think is really interesting is this idea that um, we exist in a ecology. And the ecology is subject to a social ecology and the ecology is subject to red queen races and all the other evolutionary things that occur in any ecology. And so the degree to which I'm telling a a meme and the degree to which it takes hold, right? The, the narrative economics, if you will, the, 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 um, the story that people believe, even if it's false, right? Like that the post office is going to fail. It's already failed 10 years ago. Um, that story, in order to overcome that story, you have to be better than that entire group. So it creates a red queen race. It creates a, oh, wait, I got a plug in. I got 0% battery left. Um, it creates a kind of red queen race that the things that come about are are better, right? And so we can say like, oh, well, we should have a policy intervention. Hang on, let me move you back. Um, Right. We should say, oh, we shouldn't allow companies like Amazon to exist. And then the question is like, why? 
it's really arbitrary to say like Amazon shouldn't exist because it's parasitic, right? Right? Where you say like, oh, we're gonna break up Microsoft even though we don't understand actually how they're a problem. And then like Microsoft goes and misses mobile entirely. Yeah. Right? And so like who, who freaking cares about Microsoft? And now they had to like reinvent themselves and so they're like way better, right? And so like, I think you have the entrainment and I think that's a big thing. And I think, you know, there's an education component and there's a compliance component, right? And this is the problem that technocrats have, which is they feel like some people are never gonna be compliant. They're like, oh my God, jobs are gonna take away all the lower than 70 IQ, you know, robots are gonna take away all the lower than 70 IQ jobs. Like we gotta have, find something for these people to do. Or like now it's a below 110 IQ points. Well, that's fucking, you know, 70% of the distribution. And all those people are entrained. I could get them to say anything. Look, monk, dance, monkey, dance. That's right. right. And you can create some kind of, you know, go fund me for porn stars, right? And then all of a sudden you're living in a Black Mirror episode where a woman just wants to sing and then she's, you know, gang fucked or whatever. So you have the entrainment component. On the Shout other side. Shout out to Hollywood, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On the other side you have this, these red queen races, right? Where the thing that has to, in order to beat it, you have to, it has to be better, hmm. right? Like arguably you could say the developments in the sexual marketplace with Instagram and all these things have given some men more capability than they've ever had before in terms of sexual access. And that means that the bar to becoming one of those men has gotten even higher. Hmm. So we're getting even higher quality men in the sexual marketplace. Now we don't like it, but what it's ultimately done is it's reduced barriers to entry, which has increased equality of opportunity rather than equality of outcome. If you think about monogamy as socially enforced in religion, then that's equality of outcome. Everybody gets a partner, right? You don't get a situation where 25% of women who don't have kids want to, right? Um, but they can't find mates because they've been led to believe that they're worth more than they can get on the social marketplace. You don't have that with socially enforced monogamy. You do have that today because we've reduced access. And as a result, the people that we're creating are better, right? If you look at a 65 year old today versus a 65 year old 30 years ago, it's not even a question. Quality of life difference is amazing, right? And you can say like, well, this isn't a sexual marketplace thing. This is just like our technology, but like ultimately, why do people deploy that technology, right? Because they want to have more kids with better looking people. They want to live longer, right? This is all our biology running for us. And so, yes, I agree with you that there are things that we have to address. And I also think that they create situations that resolve themselves because humanity is pretty, there's a regression, there's a means regression that occurs. So like what's happening right now, we're way off on some crazy island. We'll come back in a really aggressive way. A lot of people will die. That's that's just where I was going to take it. It's like, okay, the best are becoming better, but everybody else is not. And listen, if you suck at life, if you sucked at life in the 50s, for example, you didn't really have an idea necessarily how bad you sucked at life, especially if you're living in small town America. You know, your, your neighbor might have a, another 500 square feet or a little nicer car or a second car. But you, sure. you had your ugly wife and he had his beautiful wife, but you both had three kids and they went to the same school. Yeah. 
But just like you said, with this sort of globalization of, I don't necessarily want to use that word, but I mean it literally. They're just the world, the worldwide spread of technology and the access that that brings with it to to everything. You can you can go and see somebody who is handsome and jacked and knows how to fight and sleeps with a hundred women and has twenty million dollars and flies all over the world doing adventurous stuff and jumps out of planes and owns a yacht and you know, has a clothing line and an alcohol line and, a, and just does all this amazing stuff and is a super athlete and is genetically gifted in the looks and the athletics and the intelligence. And you go, well, that's Superman right there. That's yeah. Superwoman right there. Yeah. And, and for most people, they say, I'm not anything like that. Yeah. Do you know and how many, do you know, wait, wait, let's, let's, let's back up. How many sexual partners with children that a man in 8,050 BC have? Do you know? Well, say the question again. If we look at the beginning of agriculture, let's fast forward 500 years after the beginning of agriculture. So let's call it 7,500 BC before Christ or whatever, before common era, if you want to be a revisionist, right? And we look at the DNA record. How many women was a guy who was having children having children with on average? Well, I think that's, I think I know the answer. The answer is 17. 17 guys who were having kids. Yeah, exactly. So then the question is, well, what about all the guys that weren't? Oh, they were having a really great time. No, they weren't. They were having a terrible time. And that's why we literally invented monogamy. That's why all the religions consolidated on this idea of one man, one woman in a family because of the utter chaos that occurs when that happens. Well, that's, yeah. that's my point. We're, yeah. we're speaking, yeah. And, and that's that's my point. Imagine that, but times a billion. Well, but the, see, here's the thing. No, no, but the here's the number one dude in the world. <laughs> here's the thing. The number one dude in the world, Genghis Khan, is not having 500 kids, right? Talk about your guy there, right? How many children do they have? Maybe 12, maybe. Right? You take one of these Arab sheik guys with four wives, they have maybe 12 kids. Right. So you can count on like three hands how many guys have more than 20 kids who are at that level. That's way different than 8000 BC, where I have 10 sons and each of them have 50 kids. Right. Like, but it's, it's, it's way different. So, 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 so when you say like, oh, well, we need a policy, we, a social policy will emerge. I think a social policy will emerge. Right. But I don't think it's going to be. Like, I think that to say, well, so, so there may be a lot of like hoes, right. That just get created and that, that will happen. But there's a lot of women who actually just want to have children yeah. who aren't having children and they will, they will figure out amongst themselves, like how to change the sexual marketplace. So they get back into advantage. Otherwise the society collapses. Right. Yeah. And um, you can already see among millennials and the younger generations that there's already a push towards more conservative, like partnering values than Gen X, right? So if you go from boomers to Gen X to millennials to generation D or whatever they're calling them, there's a, there's a big change in terms of their sexual freedom. Like nobody wants to be Samantha from sex in the city today. For sure. Right. They are like, Oh my God, that was terrible. I mean, you have Cardi B, but that's like one example, <laughs> right. With WAP. 
But like, if you actually like you, you survey people, they're having less sex with fewer partners than ever before, at least since they started making statistics about this in the seventies. Right. But that's just because they pH balance is off. <laughs> yeah, I know. I saw that, right? You got to stop blowing the guy who's doing the, what did she say? Who's eating the, the barbecue. I fucking yeah. died. If yeah, I fucking yeah, died. Yeah, you have eat barbecue ribs all day, and then you're not brushing your teeth. <laughs> oh, it killed me. It killed me. Because yeah. I was like, she good for this lady, right? Like, she's yeah. going to make money. Good for her. I can't she's believe funny. people listen to that, but whatever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. But, okay. You got you got Genghis Khan, and it's like, okay. <laughs> 1% of the world right now is are his descendants. Way He's, higher than that. He's he's the champ. Okay. <laughs> he's like one in three Han Chinese is a, one of his descendants. But but if you lived during that time, you couldn't see him on the internet. You might have heard about him in a far off land. Yeah, when and his army comes and kills where he you. was well, yeah. But and then and, but even then though, he's just like riding through and he kills all the dudes and he. Yeah, savages all that's, the ladies, and then that's what they did. Onto the thing. That's exactly. literally what they did. They did that same thing to the Yazidi, by the way. But now, right? You have guys like incels, where like you had monks and everything, but now you see a guy who, who's the Genghis Khan of our time, and some guys are just like, man, I'm just, I'm just gonna play video games. Yeah. Right. And, and basically anesthetize myself with Netflix porn and video games. And hopefully the yeah. pain will go away. And I'm going to go yeah. on Twitter and argue for the benefits of porn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. No, I, I, I definitely think those people exist and they will continue to exist. And there'll be a huge, there'll be a bunch of alpha dudes. I would call them the Andrew Tate 2.0s. Yeah. Right. So like the next Andrew Tate who's like, wait a minute, instead of making fun of my customers, I should just get them to double down. Yeah. By agreeing with them, right? They're like, oh, yeah, porn's fucking great. I'm going to take all your women, but I'm not going to tell you that. You yeah. do porn, right? Watch Netflix. Don't have any kids. Because the alternative is that you get low-status males shooting up your high school. Yeah. Right? I mean, well, like, I it's a it's a serious issue, right? The access to the sexual marketplace, that these the perceived access. The, the real issue is the denigration of masculinity and the fact that these kids... These young boys don't have any role models, no fathers, and they have no one to guide them to say, look, this is how you become, you know, whatever, Dan Bilzerian or Hugh Hefner or whoever it is that you want to be. And then, you know, we'll read about them like we read about Samantha from Sex in the City, all those women who did that. And they'll be like, you know what? I slept with a thousand girls. I have a friend whose dad slept with 2000 girls. He told me, he's like, Mike, I slept with 2000 girls. And I look at that guy's life and I just think, it's not a life I want. Yeah. I mean, at some point it's kind of boring and you want, you have like your mission is more interesting. Right. And so I think if there was a way that we could give these young guys a mission and then say like, Hey, if you achieve your mission, then you can be like the playboy guy. And then it's awesome because you've achieved your mission and you have four wives inshallah. And Cause we're all going to see convert. that's, that's the component that is missing. I think we're seeing eye to eye on here. And you know, that's something I appreciate about the Tate brothers. I, they crack me up. They're Dude. I love those guys. I, I watch those guys. They make me laugh so hard. Me too. Me too. And I don't look, I, I don't agree with, I think it's great. 
some of the stuff they say or the way that they behave is not no, how be... I would want to live my life. Yeah. But they, they know that. I've talked to Andrew a couple of times for yeah. an hour plus. And the thing is, I love he that guy. has had his adventure. He's like, dude, I'm a four-time world champion kickboxer. Yeah. I'm a multimillionaire. I have 12 cars out in my driveway on my multi-million dollar house. I do whatever I want. I go wherever I want. But I already, like, I came from the streets and I fought my way to the top. And then now I exploit you because you're a loser. And he's, you know, he's very honest about it. He's like, look, you're a worm. Yeah. You, you come and you watch these cams and I take your money and then I go live the best life you can imagine. And you watch me and then you pay me to do it one way or the other. You pay me on my cams or you pay me to come in the war room or you just watch my YouTube and I get paid from the ads. However you want to play it, it's fine. And, but he says that right to you. Yeah, and 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 Genghis Khan, or like the Vikings, or you know these sort of super breeders of the past, you had to be the guy. You won the Red Queen race. It's like I I conquered the world. That's why everybody is related to me because I conquered everything I saw before me, and I took my prize. And and now you like, what's the what's the adventure? What's the conquering? You made more money than the next person. I mean, that's a metric for sure. That's what I'm saying. I, that's I swung that's, my battle axe and, and chopped off a hundred heads. And then I took the wives and bred with them. Yeah. No, it's the same thing. And I, I agree. It's uh, so that, that's the whole point about spirituality. So some people, they want to like, they, they go through spirituality, right? So they're like, oh, you know, I'm going to find God, which is great for them. Some people, they want to have a mission. No, I mean, like, it's true. Like we don't talk, Elon Musk doesn't talk to us about how he loves Jesus. Okay. He's friends with Kanye who loves Jesus, but he doesn't talk about it. He talks about, I want to go to fucking Mars. Yeah. And every technology that he's built is perfect for Mars. Every single one, not a single one isn't, right? It's like, okay, how are we going to drive around on Mars? Well, there's no atmosphere. Great, so we need electric cars. Well, it turns out there's a shitload of radiation because there's no atmosphere. So we're going to build tunnels that the electric cars are going to drive in. Oh, well, it turns out that it's really difficult to mine for oil on a, on a planet that we don't know that has oil because there are no dinosaurs or whatever. So we're going to make solar panels, right? I mean, like, it's very clear what his mission is, right? And the Turns five that lives. That radiation and lack of atmosphere interferes with communication. So we're just going to do the Neuralink. <laughs> yeah, or whatever, right? Like all, all of it's, I mean, I think that's more like his existential fear of technology, which I think is a function of being a Gen Xer. So I think all the Gen Xers have this problem where they fear technology because they don't, they fundamentally see it as an exponential where it's an S-curve. Um, and, um, but that's okay. We'll find out. I could be wrong. We'll find out in about 20 years. And, um, yeah, I mean, I look at guys like Andrew and I'm like, dude, you're fucking living all of these betas dreams. And I'm just like, where, where's the mission, bro? I like, I want to see the mission. Yeah. Cause it's like, okay, you're doing everything great. You have all the money, you have all the, all the girls. Um, now let's, let's take it to the next level. Like, I'm excited to see what that guy does next. I hope he doesn't go to jail. For running from the german cops though that's my one concern is that well, eventually he's going to become wealthy enough that he's going to hit the the big boy league because like right now he's like fucking around as like a prince um eventually he'll actually show up at the king level and i'll be interested to see what happens with him then i'm, I'm gonna say something here just sort of very loosely but there is a reason that he keeps finding an infinite amount of get out of jail free cards. 
Oh yeah, no, I, I get that. I, that's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is all that needs to be said. People who can yeah. hear it can hear it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Mike. <laughs> I told you before we started this conversation that I was into having a conversation, and I wasn't a list of ten things kind of a guy. Yeah. We've gone. We've kind of gone all over the map. And yeah. You, you've thought about a lot of things, so it's easy to have a kind of conversation like that with you, but. There is one thing that I want to talk about that you want to talk about, and I want to give us some space to do that before we get too deep in and then don't have a chance to, which is I want to talk a little more overtly and specifically about your idea of computeracy and how that might solve or at least create a path to the solution for some of these things that we've been talking about so far. And I just want to kind of give you the floor to talk about that for a minute and then we can maybe jump into a little bit. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things. First, I want to talk about education. Then I want to talk about the social ecology and then I want to talk about computeracy. So keep me honest. Um, When I think about learning something, I I feel like there's sort of three distinct phases. You're like a novice. And novices are really concerned with what are the rules, um, right? So they want you take all the data in that you can and you form some basic heuristics about it. And then once you know what those rules are, then you're like firmly a novice. And then um, an intermediate, right? Someone before an expert is really concerned with how are the rules. And the reason why you can tell someone is an intermediate is because they're always looking for edge cases so they reason by edge case in the world. So you say something like water is wet and they'll be like, ah, except if it's a steam and it burns you, then you don't feel it as wet, right? Like that's an intermediate person. They understand the heuristic water is wet, but they're still looking for edge cases. And actually all innovation happens by intermediates because experts aren't interested in the edge cases. They're interested in why are the rules, right? So they'll ask questions like, okay, but why is water wet? right? Novices, they don't give a shit. They just want to know the rule, water's wet. The intermediate wants to know where water isn't wet. And the, and the expert is somebody who asks, why is this general heuristic the way it is? And it's very bizarre. It's always very bizarre. Any rule that you figure out about the world, as soon as you start asking why about it, it's very bizarre. Immediately. Tons of nuance. It's you learn about complexity and all kinds of crazy. Then you end up having conversations with people like you, Chance, that are about, um, you know, epistemology, where you talk about the nature of meaning and being and God and all this kind of thing, right? <laughs> like as soon as you ask why about anything, right? It's just like immediately that's where you go. Okay. You found so, me out. <laughs> so that's number one. Um, number two is the way that I think, and this will all make sense in a minute. The way that I think about uh, things is I think about emergence and I think about that we live in, a, in an ecology, right? So there's different ecological niches that people inhabit. And at the bottom of the ecology is basic stuff like the environment, our natural instincts and our genetics, and our access to technology. And based on a combination of those three things, we have individual behaviors, which is sort of the next level up. So the way that you might say this in business is you can create incentives such that you'll get the behavior that you want in an individual. Right. So if we're going to incentivize someone to do a certain thing, then they're going to do that thing, you know, ad infinitum. And when we think about a collection of individuals, that's the next level up. We call that a culture. Right. And so anytime that you hear somebody say like, 
oh, well, we got to change the culture, right? Like we have a great culture, blah, 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 blah. They're always talking culture, 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 culture. What I hear is the individuals in that group do things collectively as a result of their environment, their instincts and their natural abilities and the access to technology that they have that, re- that leads to their incentives functionally. Because that's incentives is one of the only things that you can change as well as access to technology that leads to cultural differences. And then finally, you have institutionalized culture, which we call law or policy. And there's a bunch of people who believe that they can create a policy because they see something and then that will change individual behavior. But it doesn't really change individual behavior. It's kind of bullshit. And so when I think about laws, I don't think that people write laws to change behavior. I think people write laws to inculcate culture that already exists. I'll give an example. One of the things that happened as a result of the Civil War and the wars of industrialization is that our ability to do medicine got better really quickly. And throughout all of human history, um, with the exception of taking some like plants that would be very poisonous, it was very difficult to get a safe abortion. Okay. It was, it was very difficult, right? There was really no way to naturalistically have a safe abortion, right? You could fall down some stairs, but you could injure yourself seriously and you could die because of the way the bleeding happened. But because of our advancements in medicine, all of a sudden after the war, second world war, we could do abortions really easily and at a very low cost. And I think that once that technology was available and really cheap, then we passed a law that said it was okay to do. So it wasn't that all of a sudden we decided after 5,000 years, after 10 million years to legalize abortion. It was abortion was already so cheap as to be impossible to keep it illegal. And so we made it legal because there was no other choice. And when I think about industrialization and the changing role of women in politics, that's exactly what I think about as well, right? Like if you think about a society that's organized as an agrarian society, it literally makes no sense to have anyone other than one person per family vote because everyone is stuck on the farm all the time, right? Like people today, they don't realize that when the founders made the constitution, if you wanted to fucking vote, you had to like get on your horse, which was expensive, Okay. They were really expensive. You had to go to town, which is who's watching the farm. Right. And then you had to go and vote, which is like write a piece of paper about nonsense. Right. If you think about like in California, we vote for like the state controller. I have no idea what that person does. I'm not going to leave my house for a day with planting and the cycles and blah, blah, blah to go vote for the fucking controller. So I didn't, people didn't, right. They voted for really basic shit. As soon as industrialization happened and everybody went from being farmers to working in factories, then all of a sudden the needs of people changed and everywhere on earth within two, three generations of people moving to cities for factory work, women got the right to vote regardless of the religion or the political affiliation or anything previous to that. Right. It has. And then then there's this belief today that like for millions of years or whatever, we oppressed women, but they were only out through the, through the anarchists of the whatever they were. And it's just like, it's just nonsense. It's just nonsense, right? It's that the fundamental economic modality, the way that people were living changed with industrialization. 
And I've already said that I feel like, and I'll just repeat it, that all of society is sort of built from two primitives, reading and working with numbers, right? And the more that you can get people reading and the more you can get people working with numbers, the more advanced your society can get, right? Like industrialization spawns from reading and working with numbers. And there are primitives within reading literacy and within numeracy that allow you to do things, right? So if you think about like Thoreau's book, um, Reinventing Organizations, where he talks about mafias, which is like red. And then you have like different conceptions of, a, of an organization where you have like orange, which is like the machine, right? So there's all these different parts and then they work together in a perfect way. If you think about like a factory, it's like a machine. And then you sort of think about like a green company, which is like all these nonprofits that don't do anything, um, that they're consensus based organizations, um, right? Because everybody has a veto, but nobody takes responsibility. So there's no decisions that get made. Um, and then sort of the final form is like this decentralized decision-making, which he calls revolutionary teal. Um, the concepts that are embedded in literacy and numeracy only take you so far. We talked previously about the DMV, right? If I want to do more work with the DMV, I have to add more people. And because of the, the Peter principle and because of problems with basically, so you have like, when you talk about the value of a network, you talk about Metcalf's law first, which is like the telephone network is only as valuable as the number of people that are using the telephone network. Like if I have a phone, but you don't, it's useless. Right. But if we both have phones and it has some utility, well, if everybody has a phone and has more utility than fewer people, but there's a carrying ca capacity because I'm not going to call 7 billion people, although technically I could. Right. And so there is a limit to the value of a network when the process doesn't have leverage. And in fact, what we've learned is that the limit is delineated by the cost of information distribution. And when you have information distribution that has a cost that is not free, but any cost, there are an entire set of structures that form around supply side economics that, di that dictate the, the nature of the markets, right? So in a society that's built only on literacy and numeracy, you're going to get monopolistic behaviors like standard oil, where you have winner take all situations where you have really large monopolistic corporations that have the ability to drive down their unit costs to suppliers because they're the largest entity. And so you need a government to come in and break them up, or you're going to get situations where like people get taken advantage of and the market actually ceases to function. So to have a perfectly free market, which is a perfectly competitive market, you can't allow firms to grow above a certain size. Okay, so that's supply side costing. And the most important input on supply side costing is labor, which is why you have unions. The third primitive, which we created, but which no one talks about because we don't actually think about it this way. I've been thinking about it this way. There's a few people that thought about it, that cypherpunks in the 80s and 90s, they wrote about it. One guy even wrote like The Sovereign Individual, which is a really interesting book that no one really knows about because he talked about Y2K in like the first 30 pages and then everybody's like, oh, fuck this, it didn't happen. Um, but the rest of the book is very fascinating on this topic. There's there are these primitives around computeracy and one of them is that information is free. And when information is free, anything that's built off of the scarcity of information, right? The distribution model for it, it fails. And there's Ben Thompson over at Stratechery talks about aggregation theory. Really interesting guy. You can go read about it. And basically all the economies of scale fail on the supply side and they move over to the demand side. So people don't use Google because it's cheaper than Bing for them to use. 
right? But people buy at Walmart because it's cheaper than the corner store, right? That's fundamentally what it is. It's like cost. It's like if I'm buying toilet paper and it's from Charmin, Walmart's going to have a better deal because they have more purchasing power because they have economies of scale on the supply side, the costing side. And the people at Walmart are going to be more efficient at making products because they have more capital to work with and they have more knowledge and there's more people. So the labor is more efficient. But when I have a demand side economy of scale, which we think about sometimes as network effects, it has nothing to do with the cost of the service, right? So Bing could be a hundred times cheaper than Google and no one would give a shit. Facebook, same deal. Amazon, to the extent that they have network effects, same deal, right? So now we have demand side economies of scale and in demand side economies of scale, what matters is not how inexpensive you have, but how many people you have using your product. Google is valuable, not because they have a copy of the world's information, but because people use Google to access the world's information. Amazon is valuable, not because they have every single SKU that you could possibly think about. They're valuable because people use Amazon to access those SKUs. There are a dozen e-commerce sites where you can buy millions of different products, or at least there were before they all went out of business because it was a winner take all market. And actually it turns out no one gives a shit about commodities, which is good because no one wants to spend their entire life working on Android phones. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no money in it, right? It's just there's no fucking money in it. And the people suck because they don't spend any money. So it's like, it's no fun. Um, and so you, you, you have this demand side economies of scale where the consumer is paramount, right? People use Facebook because everyone's using Facebook. They don't move to diaspora even though it's better because everyone's already using Facebook. And that's why Mark went and bought all these emerging social networks. And then when he, when he determined that there was a stumble, he would just fucking copy them like Instagram stories. And now they're making a TikTok, right? Because he's like, Oh, look, there, there's all this confusion about TikTok. Who's going to own it? Is Oracle going to buy it? I mean, that would be freaking hilarious. But in the meantime, Facebook's, <laughs> Facebook's going to come out with a, Facebook's going to come out with a TikTok clone. And to the degree to which the young kids pick it up, there you go. Right. It's almost like a fate accompli. And so that's why the power of the union has waned and the power of cancel culture has waxed because you're moving from a costing structure where it's individuals inside of a corporation coming together to fight the man to individuals who are coming together to cancel the man. Hmm. Right. Because people who are in cancel culture, they don't actually stand for anything. They just stand against things, which is nihilism. Right. They've adopted Nietzsche's cultural Marxism, what he saw a hundred years ago, they have adopted it into their brain. And you look at these people and they don't look healthy. For sure. Right. And they, they're what they put into the world. It's not healthy, right? Like all of the typing, you like read it. You're like, this is not something that a healthy person would write. Mm. Right. And you, and you, and you just think about, it. and then you like actually meet them in person and they have all kinds of gear on their face. And it's just, it's just, it's really sad. Right. And you're just like, why have you turned away from the beauty that is humanity, right? And this is where you get kind of back to our epistemological, right? We get to like the nature of meaning. It's like to believe in who you are. And so a lot of my work around computeracy, which is this third primitive that we're rebuilding society from, a lot of people talk about this as software eating the world, but software is not really eating anything. It's just being used to to reimagine stuff. My work is around understanding what are the primitives of computeracy and what do every single need or desire that we have as a species, how do they get fulfilled when you incorporate computeracy as a primitive? And then how can I be ahead of that from an investment standpoint? And then how can I use that in my sense making? 
right? So if information is expensive to distribute, there's a value to having secret information, right? Because I can collect it, I can keep it for myself, I can distribute it to five other people. If information is free to distribute, secrets are worthless. And the reason why they're worthless is because the more valuable something is perceived to be, the faster everyone in the world knows about it. So like Michael Jackson dying is a great example, right? Like everybody knew that was like the first really big thing. When Michael Jackson died with Twitter, everybody knew that. I didn't have to wait to read about it in the newspaper the next day. It, I knew it instantly, right? And so you get these really weird anomalous effects. Like the more valuable something is, the sooner and cheaper it is distributed, hmm. right? And so then you get this really weird thing where you're like, okay, like are rich people in the future just going to talk about esoteric shit that no one knows about? And then by the very fact that they collect esoteric shit that no one knows about, aren't they making it valuable? Anyway, that's a whole separate side topic about the future of information, right? So like the more useless information, they, did you know that there was a guy named John Smith who made toothpick model train? You know what I mean? Like this is the kind of thing that you're going to be on because it's only things that are scarce, which are valuable, right? So it's understanding uh, from a sense-making perspective, what happens when we incorporate all of these primitives into our society to try and understand with, Oh yeah, I was telling you about the secret to like sense make. Okay. So secrecy is not valuable, but you still want to be able to act without people acting against you. And so the thing that you do, if you can't keep a secret is you just flood bullshit information, right? You just want to blow everybody out of the water by telling them. So you know that they're going to know that the virus was released from a lab. You know that 100%. Eventually, the US government will admit that that was the case. In fact, Trump has almost admitted it multiple times. Eventually, it will come out. This, right? uh, this, it's. Yeah, yeah no, no, but like, if, but I, <laughs> oh, you, you, you want me to go to the next question? <laughs> no, no, I was just saying that's like, that's kind of Trump's like, well. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, well, the China virus, we know where it came from. And he looked at him and he goes, <laughs> I mean, we know where it came from. Right, anyway. right. You're here. It's yeah. Okay. Anyway. Exactly. So <laughs> if you know that your enemy is going to eventually know everything about you, then the goal is actually not to, and this is why China is beating the US right now. The goal is not to hide things from your enemy. Your goal is to disrupt your enemy's ability to form a response. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I put out a ton of information about how motherfuckers eating bats are the reason why the Wuhan virus came out, even though it's like absurd into the nth degree <laughs> that it was a fucker. You know, they say like, no one, you know, not everyone can change the world. You're like, Oh, talk to the guy who ate the bat. Right. Like he definitely changed the world. Um, <laughs> all he was trying to, yeah. All he was trying to do was, um, you know, impress some girl. He's like, look, I can eat a live bat. Um, but anyway, so if you know that you can't keep something secret, then you want to disrupt your enemy's ability to make a decision. So you would want to, just spread a bunch of false information. And China is better equipped than the US for this because they're organized as a totalitarian system. So there's really only like 10 guys who are important and everybody else just kind of follows along, right? It's basically a feudal system with a technocratic, you know, uh, elite. And and like the, as, as near as I can tell, because I'm pretty sure she was the guy who was behind Tiananmen Square, it's just basically like how good are you or are you at like keeping the party's order is like how you advance in the ranks as far as I can well, tell. Well, dude, I, I, I talk to people about this sometimes and I'm like, I want you to think about something for a minute. There's well over a billion people in China and they picked one fucking guy to be leader for life. 
that's a dude you got to look out for. He's not yeah. dumb. By no, he, that's that's a dude that's like man. This is like the plan for my whole life. I get a plan for a lifetime, and as long as people are sort of like not, as long as I can keep the charade up with the economic stuff, I can do whatever I want. And a guy that is in a position like that, he didn't get there by accident. Out of more than a billion people, there's just one guy they picked, and they're like, "You're the winner. You're the fucker we're going to put in there for life." And when I think about that, I go, "Dude." Yeah, no, I know. And this is exactly what I tell people when they try to tell me that Donald Trump is a moron. I'm like, the guy became president of the United States. I promise you, he's not a moron. He's a smart guy. He's a really smart guy. He's just figured out how to become president better than anybody else at that point in time. Right. Now, just imagine that, but for life. (laughs) No, yeah, totally. Totally. And three Americas all combined. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And this is fundamentally America's problem because our sense making apparatus, the democracy, it takes time to come to the right conclusion. And the problem is it's slow. We already know what the right answers are, right? We, we, we know what they are. It, it, in, in the past, we didn't know what they were because it was expensive to distribute information. Now that it's free, we already know what we should do on like a zillion topics. You've had a bunch of guys come on here way smarter than me on like every topic we've talked about. And they have come on and I can almost guarantee it because I follow them on Twitter and they have given their answers that we need to do for their specific fields of, of, <laughs> sure. of area. I can almost get having the show. <laughs> yeah, I guarantee it. They've come on, you know, Jack Posobiec, uh, you know, Ed Lattimore, everybody, wherever they're talking about, they're like, you know, they just tell you like, this is what we got to do. This is my experience. This is, you know, sense making all this information. That's what we got to do. And then you're like, but we don't do that thing because we have a democracy and, people are all entrained. And so anyone can just come in and like take it, you know, take control of the chariot race. Right? It's like, Oh, we're going to get a new driver. All the horses are still running. Right. Or all the dogs or however you want to, <laughs> whatever metaphor you want to have. Rats. <laughs> right. But I mean, whatever it is you want, it's like, we have an army of 10,000 people and they'll go wherever we point the flags. Okay, great. Right. Like who wants to point the flag today? Well, let's make it Biden. Oh, that guy's dead. Um, so <laughs> Not yet. Well, no, he's not Bring actually dead. He's not actually, he's not actually dead, but I'm pretty sure that he's in such cognitive decline that he can't even have a conversation with Donald Trump. I don't even, they don't even have a debate. They just need to sit down and just be like, so Joe, tell me about your week last week. Right. Just, just like a benign shit. He couldn't even do it. I'm convinced. What's a Tuesday? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel bad. I feel. I feel like it's elder abuse. Me too. Really genuinely, do. genuinely, it's, it's, uh, it's like laughing at a guy with Parkinson's. So you get him up on his feet and exactly, and he just like stumbles forward until he falls over. It's like laughing yeah. at a guy like that. Yeah, exactly. But, what they said, what Trump did when Biden, he went like this. It's it's so it's so funny. And look, Trump's not a dumb guy, but he's also old. He's also. Uh, of course, like a, a shadow of his former self, and you see him, and you know he's really good at what he does, and he's so practiced at it. But you see him go, uh, uh, and then he just doesn't even address the thing. He just says something, whatever pops into his head, he just says it, and that's a skill and everything. But it's also just like, well, but he's also a master of theater, right? So like he's sure. been telegraphing that Joe Biden has dementia for a long time by drinking yeah. the water and by having by talking about his cognitive tests. He's like, "Look, I took this beautiful test." I'm 
everybody knows that's a dementia test. You know, like, and all these people are like, why is he taking an IQ test? He's like, it's not a fucking IQ so test. Well. I did so well. <laughs> yeah, he's like doing things. It's like, because no one would ever give that test to Biden, ever. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre, man. It's bizarre. And I think this transition, so that, that, that's, that's fundamentally what I want to talk about with computer. I see is that we have this new primitive. We're imagining everything. And if you think to yourself, oh my God, what's the future going to look like? Just look at the music industry. You know, like the music industry. Yeah, the music industry was the first industry that had this happen. Remember when like Napster came out and then like there was like Kazaa and it was like the golden era, right? You just consumed every fucking song, right? And you just made your own mix. It was great. And then all of a sudden the RIAA, who I had never heard about, was suing grandma for $800,000 because her grandson downloaded 11 songs, right? Like they did that. this is what they did. They like sued some old lady because of her grandson. And it was like the end of the fucking world for these people because they couldn't sell a fucking disc anymore for $20 with one song on it, right? It was the end of the world. And then all the profits went to the Apple iPod, just all of them, right? All the profits, they went to the iPod because what did they do? They're like, okay, everyone has pirated music. We're going to make a thing that holds thousands of pirated songs. It's great. We're going to go like this. You can load up your own music. We're going to pretend to sell it through iTunes, which was shit software that no one really ever used, but whatever, right? <laughs> right? And that's what they did. And then they had the iPod and they used all the profit from that and they made the iPhone, greatest greatest invention of the last 50 years before the, you know, it was the internet and then it was the iPhone, right? Which the mobile just changed everything. Yeah. Right. And that was the music industry blowing up. And today we have like Spotify and we used to have Pandora and all these things and everybody, no one really cares. You pay $10 a month if you care or you listen to ads and you, you listen to every song that you want. And like, nobody even remembers. You're like, I'm at the point where I used to have like a hard drive. It's the hard drive with all my Bitcoin that I forgot the address for. I'm one of those guys. <laughs> Um, one of those. <laughs> and because um, I was into Bitcoin in like 2010. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Using and, my company computers to mine Bitcoin in the background yeah, was, while I'm doing graphic my, design. <laughs> yeah. Mine was, I went to that. I went to the hackers conference and bought some Bitcoin for some guy. It was like, you know, it, was, it wasn't very many. It was like 2000 coins or something. And um, anyway, so like you, 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 Remember how you wanted to have all your discs and you would have all your music. And like, even to this day, I still use a Plex server that has all kinds of movies and TV shows and all this because movies and TV shows are not at the same place that music is with Spotify. And I'm not like a huge fan of Spotify because I think it could be a lot better. So I kind of use SoundCloud, Spotify and YouTube for music. But anyway, so it's not 100% there, but like that's the model. Right. It's like we have a proliferation of distribution. So the distribution bottle blows up, which means everything about it blows up. And then we're going to rebundle it into a way that's super convenient, which is what Spotify is. That's literally what's already happening. That's like what your podcast is a part. Right. Because the amazing thing about your podcast is. And I went to MBA school and they did this, which is just gives you a little hint about the future of education. So we would talk in class and then they would record the sessions. And because you had a name tag and then you would push the button to talk because it had a microphone in front of you, then the camera would pan over to where you were and it would see you. And the recording was was made. And then it was given to people who weren't there. And I said, I was at UC Berkeley. And I said, well, what are you guys doing with all these recordings? They're like, oh, we're giving it to the guys in the computer science department. And I was like, what are you guys doing with these recordings? Oh, we have a transcript of every single time that you spoke in class. So we installed $200 worth of cameras and 
here, I want to hear every time that Michael made a joke. Here's all the transcripts. I click on it, immediately goes to that video. I can get 30 seconds before, two minutes after, context, right? You take all of your, all your things, if you don't do this already, you transcribe them. Anyone's like, hmm, I'm really interested what Jack Posobiec said about China on Logo Centrif you know, Logo, on Chance's uh, ah, yes. podcast. <laughs> logo Centrifugal. I know I can't pronounce it. It's like my last name, right? It's like, um, you know, I want to see, I want to see what he said about China on Chance's podcast, right? And then you can go do that. And you just click on it. You listen to that 10 second thing. It's like amazing. Fast forward 10 years. My daughter is four. By the time she graduates high school, if she goes back to some kind of public education system, which I'm not sure that she will, she will have the ability to look at and record and cross-reference every single time that she spoke between first grade and 12th grade across every class, every subject, every time somebody cut her off, every time that she said a swear word, every single thing, it'll be available to her and everybody else, 100%, right? The surveillance panopticon. And so my work in computer is about like, what does that mean, right? We talk about Paris Hilton having a sex tape and ooh, that was a big thing, right? She made a lot of money because she released a sex tape with Rick Solomon. And today, if you release a sex tape, you certainly don't get your own television show, right? You have to work a hell of a lot harder to do it today. Um, and so everybody makes sex tapes on Snapchat and they send them to each other. And then there are people who have access to Snapchat's resources who make control files, right? So then the question becomes, oh yeah, your wife, you know, she sent up some really incriminating Snapchats 10 years ago and here they all are. And now you're a politician. What are you going to do? And so the, the one side of people are the Cardi B people who are like, yeah, she was flying her flag, you know, whatever, girlfriend, which is the acceptance, the Overton window shifting. And then the other people are allowing that blackmail to continue, right? Which we're seeing right now with the Epstein network, right? How many of those people accidentally had sex with a 16-year-old? No, I'm serious, right? It's like, no, yeah, you know, they yeah, have those sure. those date those drugs that you that they're in Brazil. Like you go there and then you meet a prostitute and she gives you this drug and you do fucking anything that she asks and you wake up in the in the jail. Like Vice did a documentary on this shit and you don't even remember what you did. How many like rich billionaire old guys do you think that they gave drugs to that then they recorded having sex with 16 year olds so they had a control file on? Right. And then and no nobody wants to be like, yeah, I was the guy that, you know, diddle the kid one time. And then if you diddle them one time and you liked it, right? Like, do you, do they just keep doing it? I don't know. Right. And so like, we have all, I, tell you, I never once. Yeah, they yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Right. And then the question you is, did he go to Epstein <laughs> Island when he was the president? Um, right. And then the whole, the whole story about that guy getting dementia, which contributed to the failure of the Clinton foundation and maintaining coherence to get Hillary into the office. And then the collapse of the Clinton foundation and therefore the, um, the whole Me Too movement, like Weinstein was protected until he wasn't. Epstein was protected until he wasn't, right? So you, you look at these, it's a system, right? So you look at this complex system and you have one chip that falls over here. And then all of a sudden there's this huge, there's this huge downstream effect that nobody could have predicted. I mean, everybody knew that Harvey Weinstein was a creep for decades. They did nothing, nothing. Yeah. Everybody knew that Giselle was providing girls, underage girls for rich guys. There was that woman, Ellen Powell, CEO of Reddit. She talked about it. She said at our meeting at Kleiner Perkins in 2011, we knew in 2011 
that this lady was providing underage girls. She didn't tell anyone, right? So people know. And so it's always really interesting to me, like why all that stuff comes up. And that I think is related to the computeracy thing, right? It's like, you can't have secrets. So if you can't have secrets, what do you do? Anyway, that was, that was all I wanted to say on that topic. How much time, how much time we've been going here for? Pretty close to two hours. Oh yeah. Okay, good. So I'm not, I'm not quite pushing you three hours here, but um, yeah. So if you're watching this podcast, if you're one of the 5,000 people that have watched this podcast, um, <laughs> by the time you get to it in 10 years, <laughs> no, 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 it's going to be, it's going to be like six months. You're going to be really surprised. All of a sudden it's going to take off and you'll be like, what happened? It's like, I don't know. Um, I'd be really interested in other things. So like one of the things that we talked about was that the government is super inefficient and one of the points about computeracy is that machines, computers only do exactly what you tell them. So the government is going to come up with a rule that's understandable to people because it was voted in a democracy. So it has to be very simple. And they're going to try and uniformly apply it ac across an entire distribution. And that's going to fail. And we call that automation bias. There's actually various forms of automation bias. You know, the hilarious ones are black people who can't use soap dispensers in airports because the people who did the QA for the soap dispenser sensor were Chinese and they never thought about using a black person, right? you can talk to black people about this. It drives them fucking crazy. Um, you know, the, the unfunny one is sentencing uh, poor people to harsher crimes because the computer system that was trained on sentencing saw that poor people got harsher crimes. And then there's a whole bunch of other ones, right? Where we talk about like, you show, you show a picture of a cow a thousand times to a computer. And then, um, you know, the first time you put it in the field and a guy walks by, it says cow because what it was really looking at was not the cow, but the green pasture behind him. And that was what the computer interpreted as cow. And you're like, ha that's funny until you think about it in terms of the computer looking at the um, flow statistics for a particular model of pump in a hydroelectric dam, right? Like the three gorges dam. So to what extent is the automated system that's looking at all the diagnostic data, has it not been trained on the correct, you know, input data, right? So this is a, a huge problem in computer science, which is another thing with computeracy, right? So we're going to be like, oh, we're going to automate everything. That's great. And there's these whole class of problems that basically people have no idea about. Some people do. They talk themselves hoarse in the face and blue on Twitter, but no one really listens. And they're like, oh yeah, we're going to make, um, yeah, we're going to have AI that does uh, mortgage origination. Yeah, that's going to work. Right. And like a dozen other things, we're going to use GPT-3. Um, so yeah, it's if you creepy. are watching, yeah, it is. GPT-3 is creepy, man. It's creepy. I right? can't wait till somebody gives me access to that. Who's just like, yeah, I got a supercomputer. Have had a chance. It's gonna be. I'm gonna. I'm gonna bring GPT three on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's quite good enough to do the podcast yet because there's. I think it's still difficult, but you know, give it three years. Yeah, I think it'll be able to do the podcast. I, I got some guys on the inside. They, they told me at OpenAI some access when I no, but but people who are getting access and. When it's, when it's up to speed, though, let me add it. So. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Should totally do it. But anyway, so all this stuff about computeracy, <laughs> um, that, that's what's interesting to me is to sort of talk about, because I find myself to be a novice, you know, what are the rules, right? Like another really interesting rule about computer systems is that however long and how much effort and how much money it took you to build something, to take it from an analog system to digitize it, right? So to take that DMV guy and replace him with a computer program, Every two years, roughly, it costs you half as much. And people think that that's like a restatement of Moore's law, but it's not, right? Like even really big projects with thousands of employees, it's like we're going to build Google search engine as an example. 
takes 10 years and 2,000 people. At the 10-year mark, the next person to build Google search engine only needs 1,000 people in five years. And then the next person after that only needs a 500 people in two and a half years. And it just keeps going, right? And so like, then you think about what software is, and it's actually a velocity vector rather than actually like a product. So it actually completely changes what it is that we're buying, right? You think that you're buying a solution to a problem, but you're actually buying a vector through a solution space for that problem. Mm, um, and like that. what's what's really fascinating is that that means that anything that becomes digitized becomes free to digitize again, like on a long enough time scale. And like realistically right now, it's like 10 years, right? So like any software program that you write within 10 years to write that exact program is free. Hmm. And so then the question becomes like, how do we have durable profit motive as, an, as a human being who's worried about being automated, right? And not having a job because you're afraid about being an underclass person. I teach people and, and, and all that stuff on what they can do. Spoiler alert, like do what's scarce and what's scarce is what people do. Um, I know that's not super helpful, but you can like think about like, okay, well, what do people do? It's like, well, people like people handing them shit when they go to a restaurant. Right. There's the novelty of like having the robot, like spill the coffee on you so many times. And then eventually you're just like, can there just be like a person that can deliver me the coffee? Cause then I can be like, actually I wanted two sugars instead of one. Whereas like communicating that to the point of sale iPad sucks. Yeah. Right. So rich you know, people. I, I often, uh, I often joke to people that you would never know if Stephen Hawking was pretending to be a robot. Yeah, exactly. And on the other side of that is, like the reason why bonsai are expensive is because human beings make them, yeah. right? So there's a ton of art things that you can do that will always be like ridiculously expensive. The question is always like, is there enough of a market to support however many people want to do that thing, hmm. right? When you think about like custom furniture as an example. Anyway. The, the only, there's an important thing here, I think, which is, There's only so much iterative process that can be done before, like you said, something becomes free and then the novelty factor wears off and people get tired of the shit. Like for example, when I held out on getting a smartphone until maybe two years ago because I had no reason to. I would use yeah. a computer at home, I was doing other stuff, I was going on lots of hikes and uh, you know. I was also a bit paranoid because of some run-ins with the law and things like that during my sort of wilder years and things. Um, <clears throat> and when I first got my smartphone, I set up all this automation. I, I was using, you know, if this, then that and all kinds of other stuff to just calls were automatically recorded and logged and stored. And, uh, you know, all my information was logged and stored. And if I did things, certain other things happened. And that was really cool and super efficient. And then I thought, I don't, I don't want to do that. I just, yeah. and I'm, I'm sort of naturally a Luddite in a lot of ways anyway, just because I like lifting rocks and I like going on hikes and that kind of thing. But the reason I bring that up is just to make the point that eventually that lack of novelty leads people to seek true innovation. And what I, 
You know, you, you talked about Elon just really wanting to go to Mars. And it's no coincidence that every science fiction writer essentially ever has gone down one of two paths, which is the machines win or we become uh, intergalactic species. And, and then that, that iterative process is then a network process as well, where you have your nodes, which are iterating the different levels of existence. And, and here's a great chance for me to bring up the Dune series because, you know, Frank Herbert, he, he builds the Dune world. And it's, I, by the way, I'm the key, I'm the, uh, what is that called? The Kwisat Haderach. That's me. Uh, well, I'm just kidding. No, it's you, Chance. We'll see about that. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's better. <laughs> but, and a lot of people think the first book's great and the rest of them suck, but that's, I, I just think they don't, they're not of a certain cognitive flavor because what he does with that series, he goes, here's, here's a world. And then he, he builds a story where the God Emperor becomes essentially omnipotent and uh, omniscient. And what Leto Atreides realizes is that humans will inevitably destroy themselves unless they can spread out far enough that no one faction could ever have the technological capacity, even with uh, inter, even with these guild navigators being able to fly across the universe and navigate and do hyperdimensional travel. It's gone so far into infinity that humanity will live forever. And they don't find aliens ever in Dune. It's just humanity taking life with them. And the point I'm just making with this is that we're sort of reaching that point here where if you think of like a fungus, it has to develop quite a network before it sends up a mushroom. And then that mushroom has to survive without getting eaten or destroyed by the elements before it sends out a spore bloom. And then those spore blooms have to then take hold. And it's pretty effective at doing that. And we're sort of like growing the mushroom right now of humanity. And yeah. I, th I just, I wonder, and maybe this is a good place to close because I'm taking it pretty far out there right now. No, I mean, we can go there. I mean, I, I got I got things to talk about here if you want to talk about it. I'm, I'm getting pretty close to my bedtime. Got it. So, okay. So, <laughs> plus, I start talking about mushrooms and people go, oh boy, Jen's talking about the fungus again. But the reason I do, there's a reason I do, and it's, it's multifaceted, but okay. I guess I just wonder, maybe take this opportunity to land us somewhere a little more sort of like a, I don't know, you, you land it where you want it, but if we're growing the mushroom right now, art, art is important, handmade stuff is important, the, the human experience is important to other humans, and there's probably not anything that's going to replace that, at least within any sort of imaginable time frame. And I could be wrong about that, but a lot of people in the field seem to think that that's not going to happen anytime soon or ever. And some people think it's going to happen in 10 years, but they keep being proved wrong. So even if it happens, what's your take on all that? so even if that happens, people are still going to prefer humans. Yeah. So if I'm really rich and I can afford anything, then I want the thing that's actually rare because I just, that's what I want. Like rich people collect rare shit. It's just like, yeah. it was really hard to become rich for a lot of them. And so they want to collect things that are hard to get that other people can't have. 
And the only thing that's finite in a digitized world is human attention and effort. And so if you have a ton of reasons, what was that? And self-respect. Yeah, yeah, but that's internal, right? I just mean like you can't buy somebody else's self-respect for yourself, just like you can't really buy their health. Um, Although you can try with the blood boys and all that kind of thing. But what I mean is, (laughs) what was that? I was just saying, what's up? Yeah, what's up? Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, it turns out there's something to that adrenochrome stuff. Anyway, um, warriors have been drinking blood of their enemies for millennia. Anyway, so I believe that there will always be a demand for things that are touched by humans. And I think your idea that, oh, I see that we got people coming in the room to like wave you down. Um, Your idea that we're going to try and reach out in the universe so that no individual has the power to destroy all of humanity. I think that that's true. So that's, that's where I would leave it. There will always be scarcity because there will be a finite number of people who do whatever it is that people want. Right. So it's not, look at this beautiful table that I bought from Ikea. It's look at this beautiful table that like four Maori villagers made a hundred years ago. So the question is just like, how can you be the Maori villager for whatever that thing is? And right now it's like my, my cousin always tells me, he goes like one thing where the machines don't have is machines don't have the capability to take away fear or to show kindness in a way that's believable. So if you think about like a nurse, for example, that could be an interesting profession. Although what's the barrier to entry to becoming a nurse? Um, so if like millions of people can do it, maybe there's not a lot of money to be made there, even though that's something machines can't do for the foreseeable future. So I, I, I'm super positive on all these Lindy things because I think ultimately we end up where we always were. And anytime that you go out in the world and you try to change things, so like you were mentioning how you're a Luddite with technology, what you realize is that as you try to make everything efficient and super awesome, it always brings you back to the same thing, which is yourself. And then once you have yourself, then nothing else really matters. Right. And so like walking around, lifting rocks, going in nature, all of that stuff doesn't require any technology or any consumption or any marketing or anything, just, just a state of being free. And so then the question is like, does our technology liberate more and more of us to just do that? And is that more like, is that itself a religion? Is that the information religion? I think it is. Anyway. There's just maybe one thing I want to add onto the tail of this, and then I think we should wrap it up. Okay. Adam Townsend, who you know, I know, <laughs> he was trying to convince me to change the name of this podcast. And he's like, if I called my podcast Delta Lytics, would you listen to it? I'm like, yeah, well, I would. But the reason that this podcast is named what it is, is intentional. And he said, well, why would you want to create friction for your audience? And he didn't believe that I had any reason for that. He didn't believe I would listen to Delta Lytics. He's like, that's BS. But we're, we're touching on something which is, this is at the heart of why it's called the Logocentrifugal Podcast. It's, look, man, this show isn't for everyone. I'm not for everyone. I don't want to be for everyone. That's overwhelming. And if suddenly everybody finds their way here, 
It's not going to be because of clever marketing. My, my graphic design is chintzy on purpose. My name is impossible to pronounce on purpose. My podcast doesn't have a specific direction that's noticeable to just like a casual observer on purpose. And that's because curation is key. I'm providing something that is uniquely from Chance Lunsford. It's the way I think. It's the people I want to talk to. It's the way I approach things. And I have filters built in as a mechanism to make sure that the people who come here really want to. Whether it's for me or for you or for whatever the other guests I have. If they stumble across this, I've had so many people tell me, why would you name your podcast this? And it's it never occurred to me. Them, my my answer to them is usually because it makes you ask that question. I don't want you here if you don't want to be here. I don't want to have, you know, flashy graphics and a clever name and an easy, like a like a non-existent barrier to entry. Because I'm doing something from my heart, and I'm trying to get you, Mike, to share your heart. And everybody who comes on here, I'm trying to share their heart. I've wept on this podcast. I've talked about my darkest experiences in my life and my greatest triumphs and my family. And I don't want just anybody to come here without wanting to be here. And that's that's my human experience that I'm inviting people to share, but only if they really want to. And I, and I think you're exactly right on the human element that will be the redemption of this overwhelming flood of non-human things we will find that equilibrium because people want people to be a part of their lives even me dude i'm on the spectrum i, I i'm anti-social because of that and also because of you know i've got a dark past and i've got some i've had some experiences with people that are not great and but i put myself out there and i and you know you talked about the like the snapchat issue where like your wife has a Snapchat in the past and I knew when I decided to come on the internet because I didn't. I was on MySpace for a year and then I was never on social media until 2018. And I knew because I had been listening to podcasts all that time and paying attention to the news, they're going to eat you alive. If you decide to go on there and make yourself known, they're going to eat you alive unless, unless you feed them everything that they would try to find out about you anyway. Yep. And the very first things I did, I said, look, I've been a criminal. I've been an addict to drugs and other things. I got molested. I've, I've, I've been at the bottom of the barrel. I've gone through counseling. I've done all these things that you think make a person bad. And then you know what? I climbed my ass out of the pit. I made myself physically and mentally strong. I wrote a book to tell you how to do it. I, I, my skeletons are right here for you to look at. And now you can see who I am right now. And if you don't like me, that's fine because I like me because I know all the work I put in. And if you want to see it, you can see it. And so I guess... See, that's fucking beautiful. That's Chance, this is beautiful. That's like, Why? that's like actually art. It's like, that's what it is. That's like literally what it is. I'm so, I'm so proud to be on this podcast. I'm grateful because <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly it. Like you, 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 you nailed it. Right. It's like on your terms, who you are, no secrets, just completely transparent, create barriers to entry so that you don't get the wrong kind of people. It's amazing. It's perfect. It, it may not be economically viable, but who cares? Right? Like that's, that's, that's like literally art. Like there were all those motherfuckers in the 15th, 16th, 17th century painting selfies for rich, noble people. 
they wanted to do what you're doing as artists, but they couldn't, right? Like they wanted to create their art exactly as they wanted to do it, but they couldn't, so they had to commercialize it. It's a weird place to be in though. I mean, I, I work, I've worked my ass off my whole life. I still- Yeah, everybody has. And there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about just pulling the plug on all of it. <laughs> of course. I have a couple of times, you know, but there's just something very fulfilling as a person. I'm not an easy guy to know. I'm not an easy guy to get along with. The same, the same standards of sort of honesty and revelation and things that I apply to myself. If you're actually in my circle, if I know you in person in my real life, we're going to have some of those talks and chances are you're not going to like that. And then you're not going to be my friend anymore. Yeah. Because I'm, you know, I've had, I've, I had a friend who was a friend for 10 years and we had one bad conversation and he won't talk to me anymore. And it was because, you know, it's like, look, man, this is the way things are in reality. And I think you need to hear it. And now we're not friends, but now I get to just be my authentic self here and people go, I like chance. Isn't that so liberating? Yeah, it is. It's like all these guys that got canceled, like Jack, who then remake themselves. It's like you canceled yourself. You're like, okay, great. Here's everything. Go ahead and blackmail me. You know, whatever. And then it's like everything from here on. It's like um, there's that saying, every man has two, two lives. I forget what the rest of the saying is. I think it's something like, the first life ends when he realizes he only has one life. Hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, like you're doing it right. It's awesome. It's I'm awesome. Doing it right for me, at least, you know, that's yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, this is the only thing that's going to be left. The only thing that's left is a hundred percent pure authenticity. And like you're curating a group of people that are just stupid, capable in all the areas that they're talking about and you're coming on here and you're having real conversations um it's valuable i don't know when it's valuable like that timing is always the problem um but it's it's valuable so well it's fucking awesome man i i appreciate that i appreciate that yeah uh, and i appreciate the opportunity to talk to people like you i mean you're on this show because i invited you on here because i wanted to talk to you because i think you're valuable and so you can, you know, you can take that for whatever it's worth, but that's why you're here too. And I, and this is going to be available to people for as long as the internet allows me to stay. Right. Isn't it amazing? I think it's so cool. Can you imagine my great grandchildren listening to this interview? I think that's it's what I think about, you know, and it's, it's a trip because my kids, my kids know I have this podcast. They don't really care to listen to it. No, of course not. Record, I used to record an audio version with them. I'll probably get back into that eventually. We call it Lunchford Family Values and we just talked about shit. Yeah, I would demonstrate how I talk to my kids and people. Like Didn't that. you have that experience growing up where you're like, man, I really wanted to talk to my ancestors six generations ago and just be like, what was it like? Like, what, what, what did you do? What were you interested in? I mean, you, you didn't even have a car or a computer or anything. What did you do? How did you fill the time? And I just think about six generations in the future where there's basically no living memory of us anymore. People being able to come back and be like, wow, this is cool. And maybe not like a lot of people. And maybe it's like, 
you know, my one ancestor, if we make it six generations who like listens to it one time, but like, it's kind of cool to reach out through space and time and be able to do that. So, I mean, I really applaud what you're doing here. Hey man, if nothing else, this is a handprint on a cave wall. You know, that's, I, I think about that a lot. Yeah. So look, let's bring this home, man. Um, is there any, I like to try to, there's, well, I, I say this, but I like to try to give something to the people to take with them. And we've, we've, we've dealt with a lot of complicated subjects and, and abstract stuff and, and, and principles and things. And I guess I wonder if I asked you, if it, someone was sitting in front of you, maybe your ancestors sitting in front of you six generations from now and they're like, Mike, great, 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 great grandpa, Mike. All this stuff you talked about is really interesting and you're sort of like a caveman to me, but if you could speak to me six generations down, what's the one thing you'd offer me as sort of like a concrete bit of advice that I could take with me after I walk away from this one time I listened to this one podcast with this obscure dude? <laughs> yeah, I would just, I would say something super cliche, but was really been impactful in my life coming over some of the same issues that you've had, which is that... Um, make every decision intentionally. There's only about four or five answers to that question that I've gotten. <laughs> your, your, your guest number, like one, well, this is the 125th episode, 124, 125, something like that. And I've had a couple repeats, but you're, you're, you're among more than a hundred guests. And I almost always ask a question like that, very similar to that. And there's really only four or five answers. And it's, and that's one of them that is probably takes up, you know, a fifth. Yeah. Well, what can I say? Like it was so, it was so helpful for me. That's what I would tell people. Well, the last thing I'll add is that that's what I love about having gone on this journey and, and explored the world a little bit through the internet and through connecting with people on the internet is I'm kind of an odd dude. I always have been an odd dude. Whatever group I'm in, I'm an, I'm an odd dude. And that has turned out to be true on the world stage as much as it was in my grade school or whatever. But I have these kinds of conversations and I ask people to share their heart and they're smart, they're talented, they're successful, or sometimes they're just average Joes. And there's there's a list of 10 things, you know, I said I didn't, but there, there really is like a list of 10 things about being human that almost every single one of us shares. And when we offer advice to each other, or we tell people the right or wrong things. It's almost always the same. It's just like, look, man, make sure the things that you do matter and take care of the people that you love and surround yourself with good people and do your best to make good decisions and to make up for them when you don't. And do your best. And, you know, you, like that's – and everybody kind of knows that. And they listen yeah. to this podcast and are like, what's the answer? It's like the answer you've always known in your heart since you were three. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, look, man, um, why, don't you, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet or anywhere else? And um, Yeah, sure. Uh, right now, just follow me on Twitter at Mike Gimmerin. That's G-U-I-M-A-R-I-N at Twitter, at Mike Gimmerin. You can always find me on LinkedIn and all that stuff too, but the most interesting stuff happens on Twitter right now. Hmm. 
And um, anybody you want to say hello to before we close this out? Uh, my mom won't listen to this, so I'll say, hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> you can make her listen to it. It's really important to me, Ma. I shared my soul. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She'll tell me. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, man. Like, are you good? Because if you're good, I'm good. I'm good, Chance. This was awesome. Thank you. I'm I'm actually super in, like energized from this long-ass conversation. It like made me, gave me more energy rather than take energy. So it's awesome. It's, it's weird what a time warp these conversations are, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, all right, then. Let's call it good. And hey, I'd love to bring you back on. I'd like love to come back on. We could even have a structured conversation if you like. <laughs> yeah, I tried a couple of series and I feel pretty doofy doing that. I, I, don't, yeah. like to, I don't like to put up those fences. Fair enough. So, uh, yeah, okay, we'll bring you back on. But until then, until then, this has been the Logos and Trivical Podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Michael Gimmerin. This has all been Allegedly, and we are out.